0: Welcome to The Deduction, a podcast from The Tax Foundation, your independent guide to the complicated world of tax and economics. On this episode, Tax Foundation President Scott Hodge speaks with Douglas Holtz Eakin, former Congressional Budget Office Director and President of the American Action Forum. They look at coronavirus response challenges, as well as the future of tax policy under President-elect Joe Biden. And now, Scott Hodge. Hey, welcome. I'm Scott Hodge, president of the Tax Foundation. I have the good fortune today to talk tax policy shop uh, with my good friend, uh, Douglas Holtz Eakin. Uh, Doug is president of the American Action Forum, Forum, former director of the Congressional Budget Office, and I should note, an important member of the Tax Foundation's board of directors. Uh, if you're watching the news at all, you've seen a lot of Doug recently. Uh, he's almost as overexposed as Anthony Fauci. Um, he's been on <laughs> Meet the Press, Squawk Box, and other news shows. So welcome, Doug. How have you been? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good. Uh, I noticed. And for those listening at home, because this is a podcast, which we are actually recording on on video, um, weirdly, uh, I know that you're not in your pajamas. You are actually working at your office today. Uh, I have not missed a day at the office, um, ever. Um, everyone else went
1: home, uh, in March and I continued to come in every day. Um, I have the fifth floor of my, my office building to myself. I'm, so I am well isolated and, uh, I, you know, do important tasks like collect the mail and pay the bills and, uh, keep things going. And so <laughs> it's actually worked out pretty well. Um, yeah. the joys of leadership. Yes. Um, yeah. Weirdly, I have learned a lot about how uh, aAF works by by being here by myself. There were a lot of things going on I had no idea about
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 well i I'm, I'm doing the same. I'm at the office myself because I can't work at the dining room table. I just you know it just wasn't working for me
1: yeah. well, you know, with the arrival of the virus, we also got back uh, Dana from law school and Dana's boyfriend and Beth home from work and that just
0: was not a sustainable combination. So I went to the office. Yeah, I, I'm with you 100%. I can't work unless I'm at the office. I really just doesn't feel right. And I've only had a tie on like twice in the last six months, but um, I'm kind of getting used to that. But I'm glad you dressed up for us. Well, I look, we, you know, I think they're about, uh, uh, well, I guess it's time to talk shop here uh, since we are post-election. And it, it seems to me that there are about five big issues that uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on. First would be uh, COVID recovery. Then Biden's tax agenda. Mm -hmm. Uh, Third would be what to do about deficits and the debt. Um, Next would be carbon tax. And then lastly, I wanna touch upon the impending fiscal cliff uh, with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So maybe we'll start at the beginning with COVID recovery. And um, the economy seems to be recovering you know, somewhat. Uh, jobs numbers have been pretty good. Washington's thrown about $3 trillion at the problem so far. The Federal Reserve, untold trillions. Um, Jason Furman has a piece in the Wall Street Journal today, which you probably read, that says, Americans need recovery dollars now. Uh, Washington shouldn't wait um what's your thoughts on this uh do, do, does the economy need more fiscal uh relief and if so what should it look like well i think we're by and large on track if you looked at uh
1: the consensus forecasts uh, take the cdo for example uh, back in april and may shortly after the, the extraordinarily sharp downturn you saw a quick recovery third quarter especially a big bounce back And then you saw a flattening out of the recovery and and some prolonged amounts of time before we got the unemployment rate back down to to where we had come to expect it to be, at least in the area of 5% or or maybe even lower. Um, So that's roughly the trajectory we are on. I don't think people should be disappointed. Um, It was, in fact, necessary to have um, some some big moves by the Fed to stabilize financial markets. and, And the CARES Act was exactly the right thing for the Congress to do, I think. All the sort of Monday morning quarterbacking aside, that's that's an A in terms of in response to an economic crisis, in my view. It's just just tremendous. Um, Going forward, um, I'd say we have uh, a real issue in that there are sort of two economies out there. Um, If you're a, a relatively high skilled worker, the recession's over and. You know, by and large, people are back at work if if the you know the surroundings are different, but they are they're able to do their jobs. If you're a low skilled worker, you're, about half of those who lost their jobs in April are still out there, and yeah. as we get toward December, you know that that group will have been unemployed for a long time, and their capacity to maintain their lifestyles on uh, existing UI benefits, some of which are going to expire, mm-hmm. uh, I think is going to start to become an issue, and so I'm not. I think if you look at sort of macroeconomic data, we're, we're basically doing OK. We probably could get through without any more fiscal stimulus. But I think we do have to worry about those people and and keeping them uh, sort of in, in good financial shape is is the right thing to do, regardless of what it means for sort of overall growth rates and things like that. So I
0: think Congress does need to act in that regard but in a, in a modest way rather than uh, not another $3 trillion. I'm not a fan of this. What's the right trillions
1: to throw at it? This sort of very Keynesian view that, you know, we're just going to pick the right number and, and and bang it up to full employment. It won't work. If, if you think about how this recession began and how it is continuing, uh, the virus arrives and between March 15th and March 30th, people shut down spending to such a degree that the first quarter comes in negative. We were growing fine up until mid-March. What happened? Relatively affluent people stopped spending money on services that involved exposure to other people. They didn't go to restaurants. They didn't go to, to barbershops. They didn't get, get on airplanes and go to hotels. And that was them protecting their health and uh, the risk of infection. That hasn't gone away. So. That's not an income problem, and and there isn't a UI benefit or a a stimulus check that's going to fix that. You can only fix that by either eliminating the virus or allowing people to operate the economy in the face of that virus. And so I think they should be thinking only in those terms. Some of that is public health narrowly defined. It's vaccines, therapeutics, those things. Some of it is continue to put the uh, foot to the uh, floor on uh, testing, particularly Self-testing at home, um, we're, we're on the verge of being able to get up to do a saliva strip and decide whether we should be going out or not. That would be very helpful. Some of it's helping businesses reconfigure physically so the production lines are farther apart. You can socially distance where PPE do work. Um, those are the kinds of things Congress ought to really be, be, be worried about. Find some people who, who really have been unemployed for a long time and take care of them. Then get those small businesses and help them. Get their people back into the into the, uh, the the office or the store or the production facility, whatever it might be. Allow customers to come in safely, and at some point we're past the pandemic and we'll, we'll be okay. But you have to think about
0: it in those terms. I think some of those businesses, like my local gym, will never come back. They they close their doors. Yes, and that's the sad part. We we may may lose those forever. We are, we've already
1: lost hundreds of thousands of small businesses. I think there's no question about that. And I, I think we're going to see as a result, some, some, some real time it it will take to get back to full employment, get the economy back to where we'd like it to be. Uh, Because one of the things that the U S economy has always done is restructure coming out of, of recessions. It's going to have to do that again. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone thinks leisure and hospitality is going to look the same in 2022 that it looked in 2019. It's just, it's not going to happen. Um, and, and while that does happen, it takes time. And and, and that's the thing that the Fed and, and the Congress ought to keep their eye on, make sure that that stays on track.
0: Well, let's let's jump to the spring and, and sort of uh, intertwine uh, Biden's tax agenda. Um, you know, we, we got a new Congress coming in, potentially uh, looks like a, a new administration. And Biden, during the campaign, had laid out a three trillion dollar plus tax plan and include, uh, let's see now, raising uh, top marginal rates, uh, raising the capital gains rate, uh, a new payroll tax for high earners, uh, raising the corporate rate from 21 to 28 percent. Um, on the one hand, it would seem like, you know, all of his tax plans depend upon what's going to happen with the Senate races in Georgia. And, right. Um, are, are, are we headed for sort of a couple years worth of, of gridlock or, or how do you see some of that playing out And what should Congress do on the on the tax front uh, as we kind of try to lift our way out of the uh, the recession?
1: I think there's the question of what Congress ought to do and what Congress ought to do now. And um, we are recovering from the sharpest downturn that anyone could have imagined. And if you go back to the the research that was done by Christy Romer and David Romer uh, on The impact of discretionary tax policy moves, so not not things that you had to do, but things that you just decided to do its a matter of um, discretion, those those tax moves have very, very big impacts on the economy. 1% of of GDP increase typically leads to uh, 3% of GDP decline in in growth um, Mm -hmm. over a couple of years. This is exactly the wrong time to do that. So I understand that uh, many on the, the left side want to tax affluent Americans more. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I understand their desire to do that. I don't always agree with it. I, I certainly don't always agree with how they want to do it. How you do it doesn't matter. Um, but this is the wrong time. I, I mean, with the, the, his flat assertion that when I get there, I'm raising it doesn't matter for a recession. It's just a mistake. I mean, there's no way around it. So I hope, you know, election's over, uh, cooler heads prevail. They, they think about, okay, if we um, are in 2025, what should the U.S. tax code look like? What should the U.S. Fiscal position look like and, and and sort of think of it that way. Well, then you would get to to something that is more of a tax reform agenda, and less say, let's just go get the money, and, and then and that's all they're doing right now. I think that's that's ill advised to say the least.
0: Well, I I, I want to get to the in a minute to the um, expiration or sunsetting of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, but um, let let's turn to deficits, which uh, could I think play a huge role next year it, it may be an interesting way um latest deficit projections 3 trillion dollars for this year or last year last fiscal year um and it could depending on the on the stimulus or relief package um hit 3 trillion for fiscal year 21 the debt is ex- expected to hit 21 trillion uh in fiscal 21 and 33 trillion in 10 years staggering sums how, how do you see the politics of this playing out you know i was thinking the other day that um, I was thinking back to the Clinton years. Clinton came in with a lot of high hopes, a lot of policy <laughs> initiatives, and his Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin said, "No, the first thing you need to do is deal with the deficit." Yeah. So he he cut this deal with Congress, uh, the deficit, ninety three deficit reduction bill that included a mixture of tax increases and spending cuts, and including rolling back some of the, the the Reagan tax cuts. Is something like that possible today? Could that sort of no. Derail the the Biden agenda, or are we in a different Uh, era now? I don't think that derails the Biden agenda. I, I, you know, go back to the
1: the sort of simple politics of this. Um, You know, the election was not a repudiation of Republicans, it was a referendum on the president who lost. Mm. Republicans, by and large, did fine. They picked up seats that no one dreamed they'd pick up in the House. They held on to the Senate, most likely. Don't know that for sure. Got to see how Georgia plays out. And so, it, you're not going to see uh, the politics align for, for Biden to execute on that, that, um, that big agenda. And that's just going to just be because what's out there on his website from the, from the campaign is a set of proposals that are just too, uh, way too, too much on the progressive end to be realistic in, in, in 2021. That, and we'll just see what he chooses to do in terms of scaling it down and getting some realism. Um, on the deficit. You know, I, I'm I'm I think one of the last fiscal hawks in DC, and and but I am a trained uh, economist. and I am looking at this economy and everything they have done this year. They should have done, and they should do whatever they need to. Not nothing extra, no no waste, but it, to support the economy. This is a a really really uh, difficult situation, and so I don't think anyone should worry about the deficit right now, and they should, they shouldn't worry about. The debt and it, and thus far, Congress has not done anything permanent to, to the outlook. Like if you, if you look at what's projected, big deficit in 2020, big deficit in 2021, a little bit more in 22, and then it's gone. And we're back to the baseline trajectory of spending and revenues, which didn't add up. So we had a fundamental problem. We then got hit with the, the coronavirus. We'll come out of it and we'll have a fundamental problem, but we're jumping off from a much higher level of, uh, debt, uh, the highest level relative to GDP in the history of our country. So. At that point, that's when the pressure hits. That's not a 2021, probably not a 2022 thing. That's later. But that's going to be hard. I mean, for eight years, Barack Obama told the American people, there's nothing wrong with the federal budget that we can't fix by taxing rich people. For four years, Donald Trump didn't say a word about it. The right. American is blissfully unaware of the things you and I are talking about right now. They have no idea that we have a problem. And you're going to have to do a big education campaign to say, look, we you got to do something things here." And those things might be... Um, very, very unpopular if they aren't well introduced. Are we gonna deal with Social Security and Medicare? You know, you can't just do that and, and not have people ready for it. So I'm quite worried about the fiscal outlook, not because of the big numbers this year or maybe next year, but because that problem has gotten much larger and it's hard politically. I mean, it means you raise taxes, you cut spending, you do things people don't like. And you do it in the aftermath of a horrible public health event and recession. It doesn't seem great to me. Yeah. What? Well here's here's a way to think about it, because I, I you know I've gone around this I want, I've had a lot of time in my
0: head. So, <laughs> so, you know, it's wandering around in your, your lonely office. Yeah, um, The minimum condition for a sovereign nation is
1: you ought to be able to stabilize your debt relative to GDP. Like we haven't done that in the 21st century. We literally we are 20 years in and we have never been able to put in place a stabilizing uh, uh, fiscal outlook. That troubles me. That means we're really bad at this politically. And, and now we're at high levels of debt and explosive projections. It, someone's going to have to step up and deal with this.
0: Well, and, and this is a little bit of an aside, but is anybody? I mean, Japan has had that for 25 years and has tried everything. Uh, and, and Lord knows, look at Italy and, and some of those European countries. They're all just drowning in debt. Yes. And, um, and and everyone says, see, there's
1: no crisis. It's not a problem. But that's like saying, I got a D. I'm doing great. I mean, you ought to have higher aspirations than no crisis. Right. I mean, so right now, I think there's a a deeper political problem that comes from the the deficit problems, which is like, I don't think it's a crazy thing in in 2020 for the the newest generation of workers and voters to want to have paid parental leave. For example, that's not a crazy idea. It doesn't seem wrong that people would have some time with their kid, but they can't do that. There's no money. Right. And so we're stifling the the genuine desires of, of voters because of this legacy of not dealing with our, our fiscal problems, that they're not going to blow up with that forever. I mean, I just think that's an issue.
0: Well, I, maybe one of the solutions to this is the carbon tax, uh, which uh, you've been a proponent of. Um, and uh, from both an environmental perspective and there's a revenue aspect of it that could be quite substantial, and you wrote recently that, uh, quote, a climate change, climate change will be the most important issue that the next president faces. Uh, yep. While the coronavirus is a big challenge, it is not as potentially threatening, enduring or as difficult as climate change. So I want, I want to talk about the politics of the carbon tax, but perhaps we can, we can f- first, if you could talk about the economics of it. It's, it's what uh, economists call this a Pagovian tax. Um, so why do economists prefer this approach to regulating carbon over other approaches like uh, regulations?
1: Because um, prices work. Um, if, if something it costs a lot, you, you use less of it and you try to find substitutes for it. And that drives people to innovate and, and create substitutes for it. And that's how our, our economy has gone from a small agrarian uh, economy. in in 1776, the largest, most powerful economy the world has ever seen with a dazzling array of, of uh, things that you can buy, services you can consume. And, and all we need to do is make it the business of the business community to not have so much greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere. And it'll happen. But we, we, we've not incentivized that. Okay, so let's do that and watch what happens. And, and the carbon tax is the cleanest way to do that. The so-called upstream carbon tax is to put a tax on carbon where it enters the economy. So as it comes out of a mine in the form of coal or out of a well, natural gas, or oil, um, as it comes into the U.S. in the form of an import, um, put the tax on it. Uh, if you're the person who, who took the, the natural gas out of the well, you don't want to eat that tax. So you'll try to raise the price of natural gas. And if you're using natural gas, then, gee, natural gas is not expensive these days. We've got another way to do this. Uh, so let's cut down on our natural gas use let's get more efficiency so you drive efficiencies and someone else says hey you don't want to do that I got this solar panel thing which I now comes with a battery backup that will last for a long time. we don't have to worry about cloudy days let's do that and you just drive it and, and and you know there's no question it will work um you know we've seen this we tax work and we have less work going on in the economy than we like we tax capital accumulation and we don't get the the productivity growth and the innovation we like Let's tax greenhouse gases and <laughs> have less of them. I mean, it'll, it'll it's the same lesson. Come on, come
0: on. Like a, an environmental syntax.
1: Yeah, that's all it is. And it, and the best part about it is it's a it's it's a completely decentralized grassroots way to deal with this. Mm-hmm. Everybody's going to be out there trying to figure it out. You don't have to be some genius at DOE saying, OK, this is what we do. You just let Americans do what they do. Wake up and think, hmm, I don't like this. Let's do something different. And And historically, that's been the best way to
0: solve problems. Well, and a carbon tax obviously could raise a lot of revenues, uh, or at least to the extent that it doesn't diminish uh, the, the amount of carbon to generate the revenues, uh, like many sin taxes do. But let's get to the to sort of the politics of the carbon tax. C- could it be part of the solution for the deficit uh, or be at least part of that conversation? How do you see the politics playing out?
1: So, so let me um, give you two two versions of the politics. And this is why I think climate change is such a big deal for the next president and presidents going on and why this issue is not going to go away and why it's so hard. It's a global issue. So there's a set of global politics here where, you know, if, if you're a developing island nation, you're like, wait a minute, sea level rise is real. We are literally threatened. And and those, those grievances are going to continue to rise. No question about it. They're also going to say, hey, we didn't cause this problem. All you rich countries did, you fix it. And we know that like as a matter of the economics of it, the, the big growth in emissions is gonna be in places outside the US, but the historic emissions have been in places like the US and Europe. And so the question is how is that gonna play out on the global scale? And you're gonna to have to get global buy-in to fix this problem. Like right? if the US did the best things in the world all by itself, we would spend a lot of money and accomplish nothing. That's a hard thing. That's a hard reality we have to face. So how do you get good international agreement? It's probably the hardest politics I've ever seen. My view is. Nothing really genuinely um, powerful gets done without U.S. leadership. And the U.S. at this point in time, I would say the sentiment uh, in in the voters is, hey, we're not going to step off this cliff. No, no, that's not that's not something that's smart. So the only way to get real U.S. leadership is to do something that doesn't look threatening at home. And and that means you've got to do something that's economically efficient, allows the economy to grow while dealing with the problem and a sensible carbon tax. With tax reductions elsewhere to offset some of these costs is is that thing, right? And so, you know, for me, I'd see like, all right, take the carbon tax, dump it into a quote fund. And with every dollar in that fund, you can buy down the corporate rate and buy down the payroll tax. Fine. Then as the carbon tax goes up, those rates go down. You don't threaten the capacity of the U.S. to grow. You just restructure it to, to grow cleaner. And since you haven't threatened it, people are willing to now engage in this conversation globally about everyone getting this under control that, that's a hard set of domestic and international politics and there's no other solution you know a clean power plan or a regulatory approach that's going to do it i mean people are just gonna be like no we're not doing it to ourselves no one else is helping out
0: well you know it's when you talk about offsetting uh, other other taxes that does bring to mind um the expiration of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. In fact, uh, my team of, uh, of, of tax modelers just modeled uh, a scenario whereby uh, we would increase the carbon tax, I think it was $60 a ton, and it would largely offset making the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act permanent. Yes. Um, and as we all know, the, uh, the, the, in fact, uh, two thousand twenty. I think, uh, or 21. We start to have businesses that have to amortize R&D. We're going to see a beginning of the phase out of the expensing. And of course, all of the individual proposals and the tax cuts to the new Jobs Act sunset at the end of 2025. So how do you see these these issues playing out? And and I'm kind of weaving these two issues together, but um, how do you see the politics of TCJA playing out?
1: So one way they play out is, you know, a proactive effort. At the, you think of this as sort of um a part of tax reform and the tax reform says, OK, one thing we need to do is move more toward consumption taxes. A carbon tax is a consumption tax.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure.
1: So, so we have this consumption tax piece and then we sort of start thinking about what are the equities we need to do out on the business and, and the individual side. And, and, and you, you build the carbon tax into a revenue system that's more sustainable. And, and supports growth, and and I think that'd be great. I, I don't actually anticipate that. That would take that would take a Biden administration buying in completely, doing a lot of hard work over a sustained number of years, and getting a bipartisan uh, effort through Congress. More likely, you're going to have this be the big issue in the 2024 election, mm-hmm. and you know which way do we go on individual taxation in the United States, and and that political football will energize everybody uh, going into that election.
0: Well, it could be the catalyst for a much bigger discussion about fundamental tax reform itself. What should the tax code look like? And rather than just kind of kicking the, the can down the road with extending the TCGA. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um,
1: I, I hope that that, you know, it, it quietly over the next couple of years, there's a lot of discussion raising the incentive finance and then ultimately among members and then back out there with their constituents about the need to continue tax reform that the U.S., Probably is going to need more revenue going forward, and that there are better and worse ways to do it. And the right way is always to broaden base and not jack up rates. the The political discussion has all been about rates. Right? The way all you hear is, "Gotta raise the top rate, gotta raise the corporate rate, gotta gotta go get capital gains." That's the wrong conversation. And so you gotta you gotta acknowledge the the pressure to, to raise revenue because things don't add up. And then ask, how can we do it in a way that supports economic growth? And reform is the answer.
0: Well, uh, this has been delightful. Uh, Thank you. Uh, I'm heartened by this discussion and that um, uh, any worries that divided government will mean no work for those of us in the tax world is is (laughs) completely unfounded and misguided. Um, I I should mention to people that you have your own podcast. That's why you're so good at this. Uh, What's called the AFF Exchange with the tagline, you wondered, we explained. (laughs) <laughs> is, is this like is this like doug holtique and unplugged or what, what's the format of your your the, the original
1: incarnation was rotating among our various policy experts on you know a, t- a topic a week like hey do you ever wonder how this works this is what we do um during the pandemic uh it, it turned into a weekly conversation with me about the state of the public health i've spent a lot of time on testing and vaccines recently uh and, and then the state of the economy yeah uh, and so uh, we now have in the can something like 26 weeks of Doug Unplugged. I don't recommend anyone, anyone listen to that.
0: Doug like on his bar stool, just grousing about the world. It's not a good thing. <laughs> well, I encourage people to tune in nonetheless. It just might be entertaining or amusing or something. Um it's therapeutic if nothing else, and I to thank people for the opportunity. <laughs> it beats Prozac, right? <laughs> it, does. it does. Very uh, good. Well, we all we all need to be able to vent. And uh, uh, thanks for thanks for being with us, Doug. I really appreciate the conversation and the insights. Uh, please stay safe. Thank you. And that wraps up this episode of the Deduction. We'd love to hear what you think about this podcast. Please let us know at taxfoundation.org/podcast.